Blog Talk Radio.
about the things that we can do to ensure that that we remain uh, the freest nation on the face of the earth, uh, because that's what we are right now. Even with all of the all of the change and weights uh, that we're experiencing, all of the uh, it, it seems like that in from every direction that we are being assaulted, uh, that our freedoms are, are under attack, and they are. Uh, and this isn't me just uh, trying to make a big deal of it. I mean, they are. That's that's the reality of it. Uh, everywhere you look, uh, the the government is continuing its slow but steady encroachment, uh, its demand that it regulates every single thing in your life, everything. Uh, uh, just a few minutes ago, I happened to come across a... Uh, uh, a notice about the government now uh, taking control over uh, the hops in the beer industry. You know, they use hops uh, and different grains and stuff that they ferment to make beer. And then those grains and stuff, normally what they'll do is they'll uh, they'll either trade them or maybe they'll sell them to uh, farmers or ranchers for feed for the cattle. Well, now the government is saying, well, we, we, you're doing that, but we're we're not getting a cut of that, or we're not getting, we, we want to be involved, so what we're going to do is we're going to regulate that, uh, and we're going to make sure that the uh, that the grain is up to some uh, arbitrary FDA standards, and you're going to start paying us for it. This is, uh, this is one of the, the, the many, many things that are causing the the increase in your food prices. That's because everything now is being regulated. Everything is being uh, being taken. Every there's a cut being taken out of everybody's uh, operation to go to the government. The government is it, it's involved. It has its fingers in every single thing that they can do. Now, I'm not trying to say that I'm uh, completely anti-government, because I'm not. Uh, but I think that our government consists of we, the people of these United States. And I think that the government uh, routinely oversteps uh, and overreaches, and in a, in a good number of those times, in a heavy-handed way. Uh, we have uh, quite a few examples of that recently. Uh, we have the events going on in Nevada with the Bundy family, the Bundy Ranch. Now, if you just listen to the plain media, the mainstream media, you'll hear that that uh, Clyde Bundy is a rancher who who owes the government money. He's he's allowing his cattle to trespass on government land, and he's not paying his fees. And therefore, it's the duty of the Bureau of Land Management to go in and take those cattle. Uh, what you're not hearing is every single thing else that's involved in it. Uh, yes, I believe that uh, Clive Bundy uh, probably does owe some grazing fees, even though, listen, uh, his family, his family were there before there was uh, BLM, before there was public lands, they were using those lands. Uh, they were doing this before all of this was going on. And uh, <clears throat> uh, 
and the Bureau of Land Management uh, grew up around them. Now, he was paying fees previous to this, but I've got to tell you, for, for the government to react in the way they did, I think is outlandish. I, I, I don't understand it. Why would you, if, if apparently what the government's saying is that uh, Bundy's cattle are trespassing and they're creating uh, 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 an unsafe environment for the endangered, endangered desert tortoise. Well, what they're not telling you is that uh, is that Harry Reid and uh, the rest of the folks there at uh, BLM and stuff have redrawn the turtle's habitat over and over again. Uh, they've done it to suit uh, their needs or their desires to make deals with uh, with their business partners or their uh, campaign contribution uh, folks. They've redrawn where the turtle lives with the stroke of a pen. They didn't go out and resurvey. They just said, okay, now the turtle lives here. It doesn't live here because we're going we're gonna to sell these public lands uh, to company XYZ. So now it lives over here. Not only that, but the BLM, uh, I'm not sure exactly if it's them uh, that's doing the actual euthanization, but they've determined that there are way too many turtles to uh, to live in certain areas, and they've actually been killing the turtles themselves. There's a lot more going on than what the mainstream media is telling you. Apparently, uh, Harry Reid and his son, now Harry Reid's not allowed to do this because he's a government official, but his son can, are working out a deal with the Chinese to sell them 9,000 acres uh, and for the Chinese to put in uh, a large solar manufacturing plant and then a large uh, solar energy gathering area. Now, until just recently on the BLM page, there was a report that was stating that they did not think that the solar panels would be able to uh, withstand uh, interaction with the cattle. And that could lead to some maintenance problems down the line. This could potentially sour the deal with the Chinese. It's a $5 billion deal. I, I cannot tell you for sure that that is what the real reason is. But I don't think that, uh, I don't think it's kind of, uh, of a genius to figure out that the turtles, which uh, by several other uh, surveys or several other uh, research papers, apparently do better when coexisting with cattle. Apparently they receive a good bit of nutrition when they are eating the plant material that's already been digested by the cattle in the cattle's uh, you know, in the cow pies. And, uh, and I just can't imagine that what uh, the government and the news media are telling you is the, is the real reason, because I just told you uh, the other things that are, are going on. In addition to that, there were over uh, 52 other ranchers in the area. And when BLM decided that uh, they, wanted, they didn't want them on the, quote, public land anymore, then uh, one by one they were forced off. Now, this also has uh, a lot to do with 
water rights. Uh, Western water rights are very complicated and very tricky out there, but apparently if you can get the person uh, who is who, ha- who owns the traditional water rights to a certain piece of land, if you can get them to uh, to stop what they're doing that is using that water, then you can then uh, force them to forfeit their rights to the water. Now, once they forfeited their rights to the water, uh, there's not much they can do there. They're eventually going to have to pack up and move. And that's what uh, over 52 of them have done. Clyde Bundy's the last one there, the last holdout. And uh, and apparently this is presenting uh, a problem to the government, uh, especially at least to Harry Reid. Now, we also know that uh, over 80% of Nevada is is public lands. And and certainly uh, certainly there is there is some way for the uh, the farmers and ranchers to coexist with the uh, with the animals there and listen uh, I I'm grown up in in ranching in farming and ranching and uh, that's what I do now and I I'll tell you this right now the of all of the farmers and ranchers that I know, all of them are the best possible stewards of the land that they are on. Uh, no farmers want to harm the land. No farmers or ranchers want to harm the land. Uh, all of the farmers and ranchers I know go out of their way uh, to try and make sure that it's not just uh, benefiting them. It is benefiting uh, wildlife. Uh, whenever I clear out uh, uh, brush and stuff like that, uh, I'll always uh, uh, put it in large piles, and then I'll leave those piles so that there's places for animals to live. Uh, there are plenty of areas that I don't mess with at all because I'm leaving those for uh, the wildlife to use. Uh, we plant things uh, at certain times that we plant specifically for wildlife, uh, and the list goes on and on. Uh, will uh, create uh, water-holding areas so that the wildlife, not just the cattle, uh, and sometimes the cattle we can't even use the areas that we uh, uh, that we create. We're doing this uh, because we want to be stewards of the land. We don't want to harm the land. Harmed land is no good to, to anyone. I think that's something that uh, a lot of folks... Uh, a lot of folks don't understand. Think that uh, farmers and ranchers uh, are out there just to uh, uh, to do anything to the land they can to make a buck, and they don't care about anything else. And that I, I'm sure there may be folks that are out there that are like that. I just don't know any. Uh, all of the farmers and ranchers I know uh, always do the best they can, uh, not just for their own crops and their own animals. So they do the best they can to ensure uh, that wildlife uh, is cared for, and that uh, and that we we treat the land in such a fashion that it will be it will be usable, and it will be 
uh, still filled with wildlife for our children and our grandchildren and all those that come after us. Uh, Farmers and ranchers are, are the stewards of the land. I think that the the government, uh, as far as the BLM agents and stuff, I think that they, uh, I think that perhaps they thought that that just going in with uh, in such a heavy-handed fashion and with uh, with overwhelming force was just going to shut everybody up and close it out. And they were going to be able to do what they wanted to do. Like I said, I think that. Uh, for this one farmer, that they are going to shut down uh, all the airspace around there. They shut down the uh, phone cell towers. They they created little corrals, which were called uh, First Amendment areas. Now, last time I looked, there weren't uh, little First Amendment areas in our country. Uh, the First Amendment, areas, as far as I knew, stretched all the way from Canada to Mexico, north and south, and from the Atlantic to the Pacific, east and west. That was my understanding of it. And I think, I, I think that the government is, they're pulling the, uh, they're pulling the, the heavy-handed tactics at their very first, at their very first option, each of these times, and I, I think that they don't understand that they are way behind the playbook as far as what the American people are willing to accept and what they what they can get away with now. You know, there have been uh, quite a few ugly episodes. Uh, in the last 20 years, uh, from Ruby Ridge to Waco, uh, and uh, and many others. But for those, there were there was no uh, there were media blackouts, and then you were you were you were only being told what the media. There was no other way to get information unless you went there, unless you were the ones there on the ground. Now things are completely different. Uh, with the advent of the internet and social media, uh, news can spread uh, like wildfire. It can spread instantaneously uh, across thousands of miles, across the the pages that millions of people are looking at instantaneously. And and this is creating. Uh, a very vast alternative media system. And on that note, I, I want to uh, I want to to tell you what I see or how I see this moving. I think the government is playing a very dangerous game. Uh, in 1774, uh, General Gage was the commanding. Uh, general of occupational troops in Boston. And they were occupational troops. They had been sent there uh, in a punitive, as a punitive measure, to punish uh, the colonists in Boston for their behavior. The, uh, the king did not like the way the colonists 
were behaving, their refusal to uh, pay certain taxes, which they felt uh, were prohibitive, and they also felt that they weren't getting their money's worth. They weren't receiving the uh, same rights, privileges, the same rights and freedoms uh, under the British Constitution as the folks on in, on the mainland were. The colonists were considered uh, like uh, second-class citizens, second cousins. <clears throat> they were being forced to pay for the war with France, and uh, and England was saying, "Well, look, you guys owe this money because we, you know, we came over there and we we defended you and we saved you." And the colonists said, "Hey, wait a minute." You, we took care of ourselves. You didn't save us on anything. You, in matter of fact, you drug us into a war with France that we didn't want to be in in the first place. You made us fight over here. Uh, you got uh, tens of thousands of us killed, uh, murdered, burned to death. And we fought through it ourselves uh, by virtue of the militias that we put together. And now you're saying that we're going to have to pay all of these taxes because of something that you didn't do. Well, once uh, once things became more heated, uh, the king decided that uh, we're going to have to send some troops over there because they are uh, they're not following orders. They're not paying the taxes. They're threatening to hang or par and feather all of the tax collectors we're sending out. We're going to have to do something. So the Crown sent uh, occupational forces in, and they came in and uh, and virtually took over the city of Boston, <clears throat> and there wasn't enough housing. <clears throat> so they uh, were quartered in the homes of the citizens there. So you might, if you wonder where some of the amendments come from in the Bill of Rights, you don't have to look very far. That's that's where they came from. Uh, and, and I'll tell you some more of them in just a minute, but uh, it's unlawful to quarter troops in houses now in America because of what they did then. <clears throat> All right. There were still more and more problems going on with the colonists. And uh, Gage finally said, look, here's what I'm going to do. Uh, they've got these flintlock muskets and uh, the muskets require gunpowder for them to fire. I'm not going to try and go and get their, get all the muskets. I'll never be able to do that anyway. But what I can do is the the colonists, they would keep a little gunpowder for their own personal use, but uh, they didn't keep, like nowadays, uh, people may keep, you know, 500, 1,000, 5,000 rounds of ammunition in their homes and, and feel fairly safe about it. Back then, it wasn't that safe for things to do because you had a, for you to have a big uh, 20, 30, 40-gallon keg of gunpowder in your house where everything was done with an open flame. All your lights, all your heating, cooking, everything was done with an open flame. It wasn't a great idea. It could turn a, uh, could turn a small kitchen fire or, or a small home fire uh, into a complete disaster, and it, and it did on many occasions. I caused the colonists to begin to store their powders in a communal storage facility. And these would normally be uh, uh, built out of, they'd be usually windowless uh, buildings built out of stone, and they would be set away from the, the uh, general population. 
Gage decided that uh, in order to keep these colonists under control, he would go and he would confiscate the powder. They would still have their muskets, and they would still run their mouths, but they really couldn't do much other than that if they had no powder for their muskets. So he put together a group of folks, and uh, in the middle of the night, these these uh, shock troops went out, and they went to a powder storage facility close to Salem. They got the key to the facility from the local sheriff. They loaded all up, loaded up all of the powder, and it was a great deal of it. Loaded up all the powder and sailed off with it. And they justified this by saying that the powder was the king's powder. Uh, in the same way that all the roads were the king's roads and uh, all the animals were the king's animals. Uh, when in reality, the colonists had a completely different view of this. The colonists considered it their own powder, and, and, and quite rightly so, because they had paid for it. They had uh, provided for its care and storage by building a facility for it and making sure it was okay. <clears throat> and... Uh, and they were they were outraged so much so in fact that in the in this in that time without uh social media without cell phones or without uh, the nightly news on tv the information got out and ran like wildfire through the colonies that this happened early in the morning by that night uh, it is estimated that there were over 20,000 armed colonists headed toward Boston. Uh, the colonists were were under belief that this was an attack on the citizens by the British regulars, by the troops. Uh, they didn't they didn't realize it was just a powder raid. They thought it was an actual uh, attack on some of the citizens here. Well, it was too late for them to do anything about it. They'd gotten the powder, and they'd gotten away with it. But the colonists, as I said, were so angry about this that they vowed this wasn't going to happen again. They immediately set up uh, uh, intelligence-gathering systems all across the colonies. The town of Boston, it was said, was so rife with, uh, with... what the regulars called spies uh, and folks gathering intelligence, that they felt there was no safe place for them to talk. If they felt that if they were going to have a discussion that they didn't want repeated, they had to walk all the way out to the end of the of Boston Wharf. That was a you know a, a pier that stretched out into the uh, into the bay there. If they didn't want someone to hear it, ran several more powder raids. However, after the first one, there were no more raids that were successful because of the intelligence systems. Now, <clears throat> there were several, there were many more raids with uh, troops uh, gearing up and heading out uh, to different locations to, uh, to grab the powder and uh, confiscate it. But it just didn't work because <clears throat> wherever they were going, uh, they were the, the news had already gone ahead of them. They'd already removed the powder. 
or they had blocked the troops from making their destination. What the government didn't realize, what Gage didn't realize, is that all of these attempts uh, to confiscate the colonist powder, that these repeated uh, uh, forays into the countryside like this, what he didn't realize is that they were training the uh, colonists to respond. They were training them to mobilize and training them to respond. Uh, this is a very tricky dance that that governments can get into with their citizens because the governments will do something. The people will see the government do something. They will uh, they will as in the case of the powder alarm, they will see that uh, that the government is doing something that uh, that they don't appreciate. They the citizens will have some type of response to it. But when they do, then the government says, "Oh, look, they look this. They have this type of response to it. Next time, we're going to have to do something different and bigger in order to uh, uh, to achieve our goals." So the next time they do, and when they do that that scares or that causes the citizens to do something on their side even bigger. So let's say you begin a dance of escalation, but at the same time you're also training, they're also training these citizens to mobilize. And as I said, this is a very dangerous, a very tricky game to play because it doesn't end well. Uh, at some point, uh, what will happen is the same thing that happened in 1775. After the after Gage had trained the citizens uh, to mobilize, to gather intelligence, uh, to figure out the the quickest route to get from point A to point B, the way to inform all of the other citizens along the way, uh, what to do if uh, the government did this, what to do if they did this. Uh, how to uh, how to defeat uh, the British regulars? Uh, how to uh, how to stop them from achieving their goals? And it ends up with Gage sending out uh, a brigade on April 18th, 1775, in the middle of the night. And the people, even though the government took all of the precautions. The same uh, equivalent today as uh, shutting down the cell phone towers and flipping off the Internet. They did the same thing. They, uh, they were leaving out of Boston. What they did is they shut all the entry and exit points uh, out of Boston. They shut them off so nobody could leave Boston. That's the only way to get uh, information out, right, was to leave. <clears throat> well, they didn't count on one if by land, two if by sea. And... Uh, and the information got out. And this caused the people to be mobilized and in such a rapid fashion that by the end of the day on April 19th, there were over 40,000 armed colonists in the field uh, uh, either engaged in fighting the British regulars or on the way to do so. 
until they had pushed them, not just one brigade, but actually two brigades, because there was a second brigade, uh, Percy's brigade, that was sent out as a relief brigade and uh, of the brigades back into Boston. And that began a year-long siege of Boston that uh, eventually ended when the colonists emplaced uh, uh, cannon on Dorchester Heights. And, uh, and that made the British position in Boston untenable. And they had to load up on boats and uh, sail away to Halifax. So I see a lot of the same type situations going on right now. You see the, the, the government trying to do something heavy-handed in places like uh, the Bundy Ranch in Nevada. And, uh, and it's something that could have been worked out uh, a dozen other ways. But the government chose this way. They continuously, uh, for some reason, feel like they have to they have to solve the event these events by asserting their dominance uh, by making sure that that they are putting their boot on your neck and showing you that resistance is futile uh, because they did that the the information raced around the nation. And especially when the information came out that uh, this didn't have anything to do with turtles, uh, mainstream media wouldn't pick it up. However, uh, one, the, the Drudge, Drudge Report picked it up. And when they did, after the Drudge Report picked it up, it became the number one news story in the world, not just in America, but in the world. There were over 100,000 shares uh, within just a few hours across social media. The number one news story in the world. And because of that, uh, it it certainly caused a lot of folks uh, to mobilize. To, to, a lot of folks went out there. They went out there to, to show support uh, for the Bundy family. And, uh, and like I said, you know, you may feel you may feel that uh, that uh, he was wrong for whatever reason uh, in not paying uh, his fees. Now, if one understand, he said he would be glad to pay him to the state. He just wasn't going to pay him to the federal. And this wasn't, and he had been paying them. But then they changed the deal in the middle of uh, in the middle of the uh, of their of their contract. And that's when he stopped paying. Now, you may not feel that uh, he was right to do that. Maybe he wasn't. But regardless of whether he was right or wrong, the federal government's uh, reaction to this was definitely wrong. If you don't think that, uh, that the federal government, uh, that... Is not uh, very slowly but surely becoming more and more militarized. Uh, I mean, uh, you got to tell me that. <laughs> I got. I, I just got to say that, like the uh, 
the federal libraries and the federal or the post office uh, having uh, having commando style assault units. Uh, I just uh, I don't agree with that. I don't think that's what they should be doing, and I think it's wrong. <clears throat> uh, we're supposed to have uh, James Neighbors from Overpasses for America on the show tonight. I don't know if he's having some type of problems or uh, if he can't uh, reach us or something. If he calls in, we'll uh, get him on the show and and uh, and get you guys up on to, on to speed on it. But let me tell you a little bit about what they're doing. Uh, all across the nation, you have folks now, more and more folks that are becoming active, and more and more folks are looking for ways to uh, to exert some type of influence over the world that they're living in, exert some type of influence over uh, the events that are going on around them. And, and everyone has different things that they are uh, that they are doing. Some people are, you know, they're doing different things. And uh, the, the things that Mr. Neighbors is doing is he has uh, decided that, I believe, back in, 2013, he uh, he decided that there were millions of folks every day that were uh, driving down the highways and passing under the overpasses. And uh, I guess he just figured out that, uh, you know, if you've got somebody up on top of those overpasses, and they held up signs that uh, it would be in the direct sight line of millions of people passing by. It wouldn't be; it'd be very hard for them to ignore it. And that's what he's done. He's been able to organize uh, uh, folks all across the country uh, and have them set up. Uh, have them set up chapters in their state with uh, with the ability to uh, hold up hold up signs on overpasses to get information out and it's having a it's having a really big effect uh, and what started out as a very small organization has grown into a very large organization and it's a way that a lot of folks can get involved, and uh, they don't have to do anything uh, anything big. Uh, they don't have to invest any money. They don't have to. Uh, it doesn't take a lot of time. But what they can do is they can they can sit down in their living room, and they can uh, take a piece of poster board, and they can write a uh, sign out, and then they can go scan an overpass and hold that sign up for people to read. And it could be uh it can be anything from uh from a sign that says please support uh our veterans uh to folks holding up signs that say uh 
We the people say no to uh, government health care. Uh, and Mr. Neighbors has told me that uh, he's heard from lots of folks that have driven by and seen these signs, and they've gone home, and as soon as they got home, they looked up uh, whatever the subject was that they were uh, that they were putting out, and uh, and they've looked it up, and they've uh, you know they've uh, they've become involved, and uh, I just think it's I think it's a brilliant way to get information out, especially when you can have it done in a concerted fashion, because they don't just uh, they don't don't go to a uh, a uh, out of the way overpass and uh, and have a couple of people holding signs. You know, at times they they really thought this out. They may have they may be on every overpass on a ten mile stretch, uh, you know, on a certain highway. And uh, right now they are uh, the group is working with uh, with several other groups. Uh, Operation the Overpasses for America is currently teaming up with Operation American Spring to deliver the articles of impeachment to the House and the Senate on April 22nd. This is in a uh, uh, rally that's going on in Washington, D.C., uh, or before. This is going to be before a rally that's going on uh, in Washington, D.C. on May 16th. And uh, they're going to... Uh, they're going to physically take articles of impeachment there. They're going to take uh, uh, a large written list of the things that they are dissatisfied with in America and uh, and personally hand deliver it. <clears throat> so uh, I, I think that uh, they're doing a fantastic job. Now, while I'm mentioning this, let me also let you know that uh, Operation American Spring, uh, which is a, a project founded by uh, Colonel Harry Riley. It's also a, it's a large grassroots movement. Uh, uh, like most of the like most of the things that are being done right now, there are grassroots volunteer movements because uh, because we're no longer being served by our representatives. We're no longer being served by either of the parties. Uh, and I think a lot of the conservatives understand that. I think a lot of the Democrats are completely clueless, but I think a lot of the conservatives uh, understand that. Let, let, let me retract that because I think uh, I said that, but I also know that that's wrong. I know that there are a lot of Democrats, a lot of good folks out there that are very unhappy with the way that their party has been hijacked. And uh, and it has, and so has the Republican Party. Uh, the two parties uh, are, are no longer uh, they no longer serve us in the way they were meant to. They were meant to be elected to represent the people. Now it seems they are elected by the people, but they feel that their job once they are elected is to strengthen and uh, and put forward the things that their party needs in order to stay in power. That is their goal, for their party to stay in power. 
uh, it's no longer the the rep, your representatives are no longer there apparently to serve you. It's more as if they are royalty, and and we must go on bended knee to beg a boon of them. That's not how it was meant to be. That is not what this system. That's not certainly not what the founders had in mind. So now we have these the. I would say literally maybe thousands of grassroots movement and Operation American Spring is one of these. And uh, the movement is dedicated to the uh, to the founding fathers' vision of limited government. And Colonel Riley is uh, is asking for there to be a large demonstration in Washington D.C. and an actual large march on the Capitol. And uh, I won't go into a lot of what is going to be happening then because uh, uh, Colonel Riley is going to be on the show on May 1st. So he'll be coming here to uh, to talk to you himself about that. And uh, we'll send out reminders for that. I'm, if you didn't receive a reminder or from uh, the blog talk system today, uh, there's two things you can do. One, you can I think there's a way for you to physically, uh, if you have an account, Blog Talk to go to Blog Talk and, and ask to be reminded. <clears throat> but uh, you can also, or what I'm doing, I, I found out uh, a little bit earlier today that somehow I managed to do it wrong, but I put in the email addresses for you guys and signed up. But apparently I was supposed to put a comma in between the email addresses. And it didn't, nothing told, nobody told me to do that. It just put into the email addresses. And uh, so I don't believe it's sent them out today. I see that uh, uh, that Sam was asking that uh, in the chat room and uh, and that's uh, if you didn't receive a notice, that's why. <clears throat> so uh, I'll be trying to go through all of the emails and put the comma in between the names because uh, apparently that's how the system wants them. And send those out, uh, start sending those out this next week. Now, we also have a uh, a uh, sign-up for a MailChimp account. And uh, I, don't, I don't have that right in front of me. Maybe if you, uh, uh, Sam, if you know uh, the MailChimp account uh, address, if you could post it in the chat room, then I'll read it over the air, too. Uh, but you can... Uh, uh, you can sign up for that account, and that uh, the Mailchimp guys are really, are really tough. As a matter of fact, that's why I can't just uh, put in bulk, uh, put in bulk email addresses. But they they don't want uh, spamming of anybody, and they're not going to uh, give out your email address or anything. So your your email is safe when you sign up on the the Mailchimp account that we have, and uh, you'll get information about Rifleman Radio and about the Battle Road USA events that uh, we're running. Uh, as I said, there are there are literally thousands of grassroots uh, organizations that are springing up around the nation. And of course, uh, the left considers every one of them crazy. They consider every one of them to be nut jobs. Uh, and you know maybe some of them are. I don't know. I don't know every single every single movement. 
And it's bound to happen. It's bound to, if you take a thousand uh, different uh, movements, political parties, uh, you're bound to get a couple that uh, might be a little bit, uh, a little bit wobbly, a little bit off base. But the majority are not. The majority are not uh, are not being run or not being uh, staffed by uh, foaming at the mouth right wing. Uh, uh, racist bigot zealots they're just not they are uh, they're being started by regular everyday Americans who uh, are tired of the constant erosion of their freedoms and liberties they're tired uh, of the uh, of the government's continuous uh, overreaching uh, you know, to the point where there, as I said earlier, there's nothing you can do anymore that uh, that doesn't have some type of government, uh, even as far as uh, the health care, being forced to uh, to buy something from the government or receive a penalty. That's just a dangerous thing to start doing uh, because this month it's health care. And what will it be next? Because once you've done something, and you once you've broken a rule and you've done something, there's there's really no reason for you not to break additional rules. So, uh, all right, saying if you if you see the uh, the Mailchimp uh, address. If you put it in, I'd appreciate it. All right. Uh, I want to let folks know that uh, on the 24th of this month, we're going to have a very important uh, uh, radio show, and that is on April 24th. We'll I'll have uh, uh, Tom Stalkup who is the producer of the EPICS documentary, TWA Flight 800. And uh, also, our guest will be Hank Hughes. Uh, Mr. Hughes was the lead NTSB, the National Transportation Safety Board, uh, investigator of the crash. The TWA Flight 800 exploded in midair and then crashed into the sea off the coast of Long Island. This was back on July 17, 1996. The crash killed all of the crew and passengers. It was, it was one of the deadliest airline crashes in American history. Now, the official cause of the crash was listed as a fuel tank vapor explosion, although although they will readily admit there was no evidence found which could validate that determination. Uh, in addition to that, the FAA and the NTSB uh, did not ground any other planes. They did not do any other major searches to see if any other fuel tanks were faulty. Nothing. Uh, the documentary, TWA Flight 800, uh, I've, had, I've heard several people who haven't seen the film say, uh, I don't watch conspiracy theory films. 
this isn't a conspiracy theory film. Uh, for it to be a conspiracy, uh, you need to have uh, you need to have somebody that you are saying uh, some type of motives for doing what they did, and you're going to uh, generally you're going to uh, point out or name uh, some entity that was doing it. <clears throat> and a good conspiracy theory can be neither proven nor disproven. That's what makes them the a good conspiracy theory. Well, the TWA Flight 800 uh, is not any kind of a conspiracy theory. It's simply a factual telling of the most documented government cover-up that uh, has that has ever been recorded. The folks you will hear testifying in the documentary uh, that they were coerced or they were lied to or they were kept from doing their jobs or they were forbidden to write reports or examine evidence uh, or question witnesses. Uh, these are not these are not some kind of crazy folks, uh, you know, uh, living in a uh, in an apartment filled with uh, cats. Uh, the folks that you're going to hear from on the documentary are the actual federal NTSB investigators uh, who investigated the crash the actual FBI laboratory supervisors who were testing the, uh, uh, the examining the evidence, military pilots, commercial pilots, uh, hundreds, literally hundreds of honest American citizens who were actually eyewitnesses uh, to the event. And now, 16 years later, they're going to recount uh, their experiences on the day of the crash and also during the, the year-long investigation uh, into the crash. Now, I'm not going to try and tell you that this is the first time uh, American citizens were ever lied to by the government. That's because that's <laughs> that's just not true. And I'll also tell you that it, it's absolutely not going to ever be the last time that you're lied to, but I think this might have been the first time where the government actually realized how much they could get away with uh, as long as they were controlling the media and manipulating the media and controlling the the folks who were investigating the crash. And, and no matter what, no matter... Uh, if it was or not, uh, it was certainly the most detailed recording and the most detailed witness uh, cover-up in American history. And uh, and like I said to you guys, uh, I'm not a, uh, I've never been a conspiracy theorist, and I'm not one now. But the TWA Flight 800 uh, documentary is not a conspiracy theory. It's simply a, a very detailed documentation of how evidence was destroyed, evidence was mishandled, witnesses were coerced and intimidated and ignored, and the American public 
was lied to. And uh, and I wrote this out in a post yesterday that I, I know that with with the massive amounts of things that are going uh, that are that are going wrong with our government, our nation, almost almost every single day, the massive amounts that are going on, that something that happened, you know, over almost 17 years ago, uh, is could be considered old news. It can wind up at the back of the line, you know, covered in dust and mothballs, uh, waiting its chance uh, at the end of a long line uh, of of lies and uh, corruption uh, for any people to think about it. But listen, I, I really think that you need to see uh, this documentary. I think you need to see it because the things that you were told that you heard, because I, I, I remember when the, the flight went down. I remember when the, the, the VA flight 800 crashed. And I remember hearing the things like... Uh, from the mainstream media, they were saying like uh, you know there were several uh, there are several conspiracy theorists theorists who you know are are spreading around these stories that there, there was some kind of a missile or something like that, and the the media was actually disdainful and they were outright uh, uh, you know antagonistic to uh, to anybody who was saying that, but uh, but it turns out. But that is not what happened. Now, you'll see in the documentary, you'll see the, the head of the BI investigation into flight, uh, KBA Flight 800. You'll see him testify to Congress that uh, that no one saw a missile. They'll say, they, they ask him straight out, how many people saw a missile? They'll say, well, no one saw a missile, which is an absolute lie. There were hundreds of reports with witnesses, all the witnesses saying they saw not just one missile, but actually multiple missiles that were flying upwards from the ground up, tracking out through the aircraft and exploding. Now, this is just, like I said, this isn't just a couple of guys in their backyard, uh, you know, drinking and saying, hey, I saw something, Uh, I don't know what it was, but I saw something. This is actually hundreds of credible witnesses, including uh, military pilots, military helicopter pilots, military airline uh, pilots, commercial pilots, uh, hundreds of professional, uh, honest, hardworking folks. Folks, and these are the, the folks that you'll hear the testimony from, these are folks who, if they were sitting on the jury and uh, and they uh, or they were witnesses in a case uh, that you would believe their testimony and you would send uh, whoever they were testifying against to the gas chamber and you'd feel good about it. You wouldn't second-guess yourself. But apparently they cannot be believed uh, when they say they saw a missile. Well, the fact is they weren't allowed to testify to begin with. But uh, in addition to this, the government was trying to prove uh, how... uh, how impossible it was uh, for anybody to see the uh, missile. They said, oh, they can't, they, there's no way they could even see a missile. Uh, and we'll prove it to you. 
so they had some contractors go out there and fire, uh, uh, like the Stinger uh, missiles, uh, up into the into the air off the coast of Long Island, and they had the people, different people, stationed about in places where they where they said they had been when they witnessed the uh, missiles uh, it hit TWA Flight 800. And they said, they'll never be able to to see this. I'll never be able to, uh, you know, to ID even to see the missile, let alone identify it. Well, uh, guess what? All the witnesses saw the contractor's missiles. And in addition to that, they said, yeah, that's what we saw. Now, in addition to this, during the hearings to determine the cause of the crash of TWA Flight 800, the NTSB, for the first time in their history, they forbid eyewitness testimony at the hearing. There were hundreds of folks who saw this, but they were forbidden from testifying. They also forbid the investigators. This is their investigators, the folks that were investigating the crash. They forbid them from writing an analysis of their reports. They allowed them to submit the facts. Uh, you know, the uh, the explosion occurred here. Uh, we found this debris here. Uh, they allowed them to to submit their report, although in many cases the reports uh, had been chopped into pieces. The lead investigator, Hank Hughes, I believe his final report was close to 500 pages. When it finally came before the hearing, uh, without, with, without any of his permission, without his knowledge, his report had been chopped down to 27 pages, and there was no analysis. What I mean by analysis is you can say, here are the facts. Uh, this explosion happened here. This, the airplane cracked in half here, and these are the facts. Now, my analysis says I'm going to look at these facts, and I'm going to tell you what I think happened. And he was not allowed to do that. And when asked on the film, they said, well, why do you think you were not allowed to do that? He said, because I would have said that that none of the evidence suggested there was a central fuel tank explosion when it brought the craft down. It was all, uh, all of the evidence that I, uh, that I found was that the aircraft's crash was due to forces exerted on it from outside the aircraft. Now, that would have been in his analysis had he been a law allowed to write one. He was not. He was forbidden to write one. <clears throat> this is something that uh, none of the investigators had ever experienced, as well as the no eyewitnesses. Nobody had ever seen uh, eyewitnesses not being allowed to testify at an NTSB hearing. Now, the agents that were doing the investigation, these were the official federal NTSB investigators, the guys who, was, that's your job, is to investigate the crash and find out what happened. These guys were for pieces of the aircraft with fragmentation holes in them. They were forbidden. The pieces that were there that had the fragmentation holes, a couple of the investigators took them over to the FBI laboratory. They had a laboratory on site as well as machines, Aegis machines, which could, uh, at the time, were the the uh, the most precise machines available for detecting uh, explosive residue. They took the 
uh, of the crash to the FBI, and they returned uh, positive results for PETN and other high explosives residue on these parts. Now, the only way those the residue is going to get there is if something exploded and carried that residue into the part. However, once it was determined that the pieces either had uh, tested positive for explosives or it had fragmentation holes in it, they were collected by the FBI and sent to the FBI headquarters where they were n- they never returned. They disappeared. <clears throat> this is not speculation. This isn't somebody saying, I don't know what happened to them. I think that they went to the FBI and I don't think they ever came back. Is the investigators saying, we know exactly what happened to them. These pieces, we witnessed them being given to the FBI. We witnessed them testing positive or high explosive residue, and we witnessed the, the FBI taking them, and they never returned. This, especially the part about the eyewitnesses not being allowed to testify, this made the eyewitnesses, a great deal of them, so angry. They took out a full-page ad in many of the papers saying, here is what we saw. We saw missiles. However, it did no good. Uh, in the course of the investigation, countless eyewitnesses were actually threatened by the FBI. Now, you tell me, in what kind of investigation, uh, what kind of investigation would ever uh, result in uh, in in the uh, the investigators telling the witnesses to keep their mouths shut. It's absolutely bizarre, but that's not the end of it either. Uh, witnesses report after reading the the report submitted by investigators who had uh, who had come out and questioned them. They say the reports that were submitted uh, and ascribed to them in no way reflected the testimony that they gave to the investigators. Uh, one of the uh, one of the ladies being investigated, she seemed like a very sweet lady. And one, I, I got to tell you, I 100% believable in my estimation. And I, I've got a pretty sharp critical eye when it comes to listening to somebody and see if they're telling the truth or not. Uh, she reported that uh, the FBI came to her her home. They questioned her about what she saw, and she, she told them that she saw a missile. And then uh, they wrote everything down, and uh, then they, as, as they were getting ready to leave, they said, look, uh, you, uh, you're not a U.S. citizen, but you have your paperwork submitted uh, trying to get citizenship status. Is that correct? And she said, yes, it was. They said, you know, if you would really like to become a citizen, my suggestion to you, is to keep your mouth shut. Why? Why would... Why? Why should she be quiet? Why would an investigator tell a witness to keep their mouth shut? I don't know. I don't know. You'll have to ask them. Uh, If this sounds... uh, I mean, it sounds absolutely far-fetched 
but but it's not. It's what happened. Uh, now, a lot of folks may be listening to the to the show tonight. Uh, you know, over the course of your life, you maybe you've seen a uh, a surface to air missile in use. Maybe uh, one of the shoulder fire types, or maybe you've even used some. Uh, I certainly went through a great deal of training uh, on how to uh, how to use the uh, oh, what was it? What was the one before the stinger? It was something else. Uh, anyway, uh, I certainly used a, uh, had received a great deal of training on how to use them, but certainly I never fired a, uh, a live or a practice round. They're just way too expensive uh, devices, but I certainly learned how to to use them. And I've watched um, many training videos, but I know there are a lot of folks, even pilots and stuff, who've, who have seen these or you've seen videos of them uh, being used, and they, uh, the rocket, when it's a missile launch, the rocket, <clears throat> uh, you know, comes out of the device, and then it uh, it's trying to stabilize itself in flight, uh, so it's, a, it's sometimes it's a little bit wobbly at first, it's trying to stabilize itself in flight, uh, but then it will stabilize. And it will also then uh, uh, lock onto the target being uh, fired at and will track the target. And uh, not only that, but it will, if it, if it needs to make a correction in flight, it will also do that. Well, guess what? That is what all of these hundreds of witnesses individually uh, and separately reported that they saw. They saw the uh, the missiles where they you know leave the ground uh, that they uh, they began an upward they began ascending in a uh, like in a corkscrew fashion. They headed out to sea. Then the, one of the missiles made an abrupt turn towards the aircraft. It actually missed the aircraft at first. It passed behind it. It made a very sharp, violent turn back again towards the aircraft and ended up exploding under the left wing. Uh, then these witnesses also described a second and third missiles, which uh, actually came from... Uh, uh, a ship's mass light out at sea. Now, I'm not saying it was that something came out of the mass. I'm just saying that uh, there was a, a ship at sea. There was a light up on the mast above the ship. And then the, uh, the missile came from that location. These missiles uh, tracked toward the... Uh, uh, toward the aircraft. Now, by this time, the aircraft was in a uh, uh, in a very violent left bank turn after the uh, the left wing had been damaged. It was trailing a very massive white vapor cloud from the left wing. The second and third missiles tracked to a point uh, which were directly under the fuselage, behind the cockpit, cockpit and exploded. Uh, the witnesses say almost simultaneously within within milliseconds of each other. 
This caused the already damaged uh, aircraft to break in two, and immediately both pieces, or all the pieces, plunged into the sea in like a in a huge raining fireball. This is what they saw, guys. There, it's not they're not being ambiguous about it. They're not saying, I, I, I don't know, I saw something, I don't know what it was, or I don't know this. They're saying, I saw, I saw a missile, and I saw it come from the ground. I saw it come up through the, towards the aircraft. It missed it and arced back around, you know, in a very sharp, violent turn, and exploded beside the aircraft because the, the news reports were saying, oh, it couldn't have been a missile because there was no, we've got the wreckage now, and there's no big hole that goes in one side and out the other. Uh, most missiles don't, do not plunge into the aircraft. They're designed to get close to the aircraft and then explode with a proximity fuse. Very few missiles actually plunge into the aircraft. You can have some of the... Uh, uh, like the heat-seeking missiles that will hone in on the, the engine, uh, on the heat delivered by the engine. Those may eventually run up inside the, actually run up inside the engine and explode. Very few missiles are made to plunge through the aircraft. Uh, they fly to a point where they, de- they can detect that they are at a close proximity to the aircraft, and then they explode. That's what these guys witnessed. I just, I'm just amazed. I'm amazed that that the government got away with it. And I'm amazed that they're getting away with it right now. Uh, there were several investigators who ended up uh, suing the government for the radar records that night. They weren't willingly, they didn't willingly divulge them. They ended up suing them for them. When they got the radar and what they found is uh, uh, that Cations was lost with uh, TWA Flight 800. The radar returns, uh, which are uh, which are were fairly normal up to that point, radar returns show pieces of material flying away from the aircraft at speeds in excess of Mach 4. Now, uh, I know that that's uh, – if you don't understand what that means, I'll tell you that uh, the only thing that can travel uh, instantly, like from zero to Mach 4 in only a couple of seconds, is something that's propelled by a high ordnance explosion. That's, that's, the only, that's the only way it happens. People can lie. People lie all the time. People lie about anything and everything. Radar, the radar data, doesn't lie here. Uh, this is uh, this isn't some kind of a theory or a feeling that these witnesses have. None of them are saying I might have seen I might have seen something come from the ground. I don't know. They're telling you exactly what they saw. I saw a missile come up from the ground, streak out to sea make a hard right turn, uh, track toward the aircraft, uh, miss it, come back around and explode under the left wing. This is what they saw. To top this off, uh, 
we have the CIA. The CIA got involved in this for some bizarre reason. The CIA has no charter uh, to do any kind of investigations in anything like this, and uh, they certainly have no... They they have no dog in this hunt, unless there's something we don't know about. And I'm not trying to create a conspiracy theory here. I'm just telling you that the CIA has no reason to become involved in a domestic airline crash. However, they did. The CIA created this, uh, and you, you would have to see it to, to understand how bizarre it is, but they created this animated... Uh, uh, video and uh, one of the things I think that's so bizarre number one is does not uh, the video does not adhere to any of the uh, eyewitness descriptions number two it does not adhere to the radar data it does not adhere to the actual radar data. And number three, the the thing I found most bizarre about the CIA's uh, animated explanation video was that constantly throughout the video, they would have a full screenshot of the three words, not a missile, and it would be underlined. And then the narrator would actually say it out loud not a missile. And this was repeated uh, throughout the video, not a missile. And uh, and then at the end of the video it says, uh, the CIA investigators had determined that this was, despite all of the evidence uh, and everything else, that this was not a missile. <laughs> it's, uh, like I said, you, you you'll have to see it uh, to understand how bizarre it is. And you can Google for it. Uh, CI animation uh, TWA Flight 800. Uh, take a look at it and see what you think because it's it's just bizarre. The, the information, the documentation uh, goes on and on. Uh, I've given you a great deal of it, but uh, because I would like you to go in and look at the documentary. I'd like you to watch the documentary and then listen to the interview with uh, with Tom Stalkup and with Hank Hughes that, uh, coming up on the 24th. Red Eye. That's it. Ashrin. Way to go. Paul just, uh, it, the, the missile I was looking for was a red eye. That was the early 1970s version of the Stinger. And it worked. Uh, it worked basically in the, the same way. You know, it would uh, it would search uh, in the sky for a uh, for a heat return, and then uh, it would give you a uh, an audible uh, whenever it had found the heat return and locked onto it. Once it had done so, then you could initiate the launch, and there would be a small charge that would propel the rocket from the tube. Once the rocket had uh, broken through the glass uh, that sealed it into the tube, then the boosters would ignite and it would take off. And it would, you know, kind of a, it would kind of try and stabilize itself, and then it might corkscrew up. And then it would uh, arc 
and track toward the target. Anyway, we're going to have uh, uh, Tom Scout, Stalkup, and Hank Hughes on to discuss the uh, documentary, to discuss the the cover-up. As I said, they, nobody is trying to say, they're not going to try and, and, and give you a conspiracy theory. They're not going to try and tell you this is uh, is what we think happened. Uh, we think that the government did this, and they did this, and, they're, and they did this. They're not going to tell you any of that, because they don't know. They're only going to tell you the things that they know, the facts, uh, uh, including uh, the uh, the instances of the airport hangar where all the evidence was being stored, uh, it being broken into, and the tags, uh, it, the evidence tags being changed as far as where the, the location of where the material was found being changed. Uh, of them catching uh, FBI agents breaking in and changing the uh, evidence tag of them catching an FBI agents with with hammers beating uh, parts of the fuselage flat in the middle of the night. Uh, if somebody uh, listen, I'm willing to accept an explanation, and I can and I can go with. It. I'm willing to accept an explanation. I just haven't heard one, and I can't. I on my own, I can't determine one. I can't determine what kind of explanation would fit with someone altering evidence like that. You're you're changing a piece of evidence that has that has been uh forced into some type of shape by uh by some type of uh of of influence and now you're going to take a hammer and you're gonna flatten it out. How is that going to help? I I would consider that to be illegal. You know, if I broke into some place and uh, there were uh, there was a file folder full of documents and I set it on fire and burn it, I'd go to prison or tampering with evidence. Uh, whether or not it changed the outcome of anything or not, the fact is it's against the law to tamper with the evidence. And yet they did it. To for what? For to what end? That's what I would like to know. Why did they do it? There are several hundred men, women, children, mothers, fathers, brothers. They wonder too. Because they lost hundreds of loved ones in this crash. It was the third uh, deadliest airline crash in American history. <clears throat> and that will be on uh, April 24th. Uh, I've, I've would really like it if you guys would uh, grab the uh, the video. It's on Epics. I'm sure by now it's at uh, 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 you know like Blockbuster or something like that. It'd be great if you go out and take a look at it, and uh, and then bring your questions or comments with you uh, to the radio show on the 24th. All right because we'll have the guys there that uh, are able to answer your questions. And uh, and I don't know about you, but I got a lot of questions about this. 
we know that uh, the radar does not show uh, it does not show uh, a missile, but then again, regular commercial radar is not going to pick up a missile. It you know it does a good a good job of picking up other uh, some other things, reflective things, but it's, it's probably not going to pick up a missile. A missile is very stealthy and it moves too fast. However, underneath the uh, PWA Flight 800 were dozens of naval ships on exercises, including some that were outfitted with the Aegis uh, radars and weapon systems. Now, these uh, vessels can track missiles because that's one of the things they do with their, with their radar. They'll track a missile, especially things like incoming missiles. They can track that missile. Even when it's uh, very low down at high speed, they can track that missile. They can vector another missile into it. Uh, or they can track in, uh, like, their, uh, the uh, CWIS, the close-in weapon systems. Uh, they can track those into a missile. That's where a missile is coming in, and you have these big chain guns, like the 20-millimeter, uh, 30-millimeter chain guns. And they are firing uh, uh, hundreds of rounds uh, per minute. And the radar is tracking the missile coming in, and it's tracking the projectiles going out. And what it does is it uses a you know, fairly complicated algorithm in order to bring the two points together, to bring the, the outgoing uh, 20 or 30 caliber rounds from the chain gun into the incoming missile. So the AG systems have the ability to track. I'm sure they have a record of, uh, of what they saw that night. I don't know how you would ever get it or, or if it still exists but I'm sure that they would have a record of what happened that night. <clears throat> all right, that's all I'm going to say about that because uh, I, 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 Tom, and Hank to uh, talk more about it, but I wanted you guys to hear some of it so that you would uh, you would possibly go out and and uh, rent the video or, or if you have cable, look and see when it's on and, uh, and take a look at the show because I think it's very important. Now, remember, we're going to have uh, uh, Colonel Harry Riley on May 1st. He is the uh, project organizer of the American Spring Project. That's the attempt to have uh, uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, uh, marchers converge on Washington, D.C. on, uh, I believe it's May 16th, and... Uh, and uh, he's going to talk to you uh, about their event, about things that you can do to help, and about what they're doing, why they're doing it. Uh, uh, if you want more uh, uh, about that, you can just Google uh, Operation American Spring. Uh, I'm sorry we didn't get to, uh, Mr. Neighbors on tonight. Apparently he must have had some type of problem or something and uh, wasn't able to come on. But to learn more about uh, the project Overpasses for America, you can go to overpassesforamerica.com. Very simple. Overpassesforamerica.com. 
and uh, the webpage there will explain to you what they're doing and why they're doing it. They also have a Facebook page. Uh, I don't know. Imagine you would just you could just put the search use the Facebook search function uh, for it. I don't know how to, to give you the address for the, the Facebook page, but just do a search for Overpasses for America. Take a look at their website, and uh, we'll try and get him back on again at, uh, at another time uh, to speak with us. <clears throat> All right. Uh, as always, uh, I'd like to hear from you guys. I'd like to hear from you. Well, I'd like to hear from you uh, on the phone. I'd like to hear from you uh, calling in and uh, uh, and asking questions or giving comments. But if there's somebody that you want me to get on the show or if there's some topic that you want covered, I'm usually more than happy to do that. But I'm not going to be able to do it unless I hear from you, unless you let me know. All right? You can do that by uh, giving me an email at rwvarangescout.com. One word, lowercase, R-W-V-A, Romeo Whiskey, Victor Alpha, Range Scout. Just send me a uh, an email with the uh, person that you would like to hear interviewed or the topics that you would like covered, and we'll be glad to try and work that in. Uh, I believe that uh, I talked to uh, 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 Stick Survival uh, today about them coming on the show and talking, uh, giving you guys uh, a, uh, a refresher on uh, on remembering that you're supposed to be uh, working on your survival skills, and uh, they should be on in the next couple of weeks. I don't know if it'll be next week. It may be next week if we if we have the slot free. <clears throat> uh, until then. I don't remember what I said. Go take a take a look at uh, the Epics documentary, and uh, and one last thing I want to let you know: we have a all day today. We had a uh, a video shoot at uh, Battle Road uh, facilities. We do the uh, the running guns twice a year. And there are a lot of other organizations that are uh, are doing shooting events and stuff like that, and they're getting sponsorship, and and they that gives them the ability to uh, you know to to award the the folks who attend you know a lot of great prizes and stuff. And we we would like to do the same thing for our runners, but the problem is is that the uh, you know the industry is stretched pretty tight. You know, we've talked to people before, and they said, you know, hey, we're we're really stretched thin on being able to sponsor folks and stuff like that, and and so they have to uh, sponsor people, and uh, uh, and they have to think about it, and they have to try and you know get the best ones that they can they can sponsor, and uh, and we figured that we would have a better shot at this if we created some type of video to show, you know, what we're doing. So that's what we spent today doing today. We had uh, uh, Charles Weedman, who is a professional uh, movie director in Austin and in Los Angeles. Uh, he came out with his crew, and we filmed a, uh, uh, a video of the stuff we do for the running gun. And we're going to uh, take that 
and uh, shop it to the sponsors and see if we can get some folks to donate some gear and stuff because I was looking at another event. It's not too far from here. And I believe it's uh, it's a three-day event. Costs three hundred dollars uh, per person, and they, I think they had three hundred people attend uh, last year. And they also had uh, approximately uh, uh, three hundred thousand dollars worth of prizes and gear donated. So that meant that uh, those guys were paying three hundred apiece to. Uh, uh, to attend the event, but they had a good chance of walking away with, you know, five, six, seven hundred bucks worth of uh, swag. Well, we'd like to do the same thing for our guys because we've got a uh, a one-day event here, and uh, we usually get 100, uh, 120, 150 folks attending. And the reason that we shouldn't be able to get uh, uh, sponsors and vendors uh, to, uh, you know, to donate some a good amount of swag for our folks. And that reminds me, I want to let folks know, too, that Battle Road Run and Gun is coming up uh, this next weekend, April 26th. And uh, it is a four-and-a-half-mile looping trail with eight stations for rifle and pistol, as well as obstacles in between the stations. And uh, when I say obstacles, this isn't boot camp stuff. Uh, We're not trying to break you. We're just trying to give you uh, some real-world experience and things that uh, that you might have to do or you might have to negotiate while you're wearing your gear, all right? So it's very, it's very simple things. Like uh, one of the obstacles is like a, a dozen big tractor tires. And uh, and I I put uh, like a solid roll of carpet across the bottom of it so that uh, all you're doing is you're crawling to a fairly enclosed space there's a uh, like a 35-foot bridge that's 18 inches wide, and that gets you to uh, you know to across that, and you know think about your fear of heights. Uh, uh, there is uh, uh, a series of large trees that have to be uh, climbed over. They're laying on their sides. They're going to have to be climbed over. There is a uh, an 18-foot length where you're going to have to low crawl under. There are gates. Uh, that you're going to have to climb over. There's a uh, 10-foot wall that you'll have to climb up and over. Uh, uh, All kinds of different things along the route. These are things that you may encounter. If you were were walking from uh, Houston to to Austin, uh, these are things you may encounter. You'd have to, to get over or across. The main thing that we are trying to do is that, you know, I've been working with the shooting industry and in the self-reliance and prepping industry for many years now. And so I come across folks all the time that uh, that are talking to me about their gear. They want to tell me about their gear or their preps and stuff like that. And have that. And uh, I, uh, I'll always ask them, uh, well, have you, and a lot of their gear may be great gear. They would be really good gear. Or, uh, or you know, it doesn't have to be. It, it, it could be, you know, you can make any, just about anything work for you. But the main thing you have to do is find out if it works for you. So I ask these guys, I say, well, they'll say, if, you know, if, uh, if I have to uh, you know, defend myself from zombies or if I have to survive at the end of the world, I'm going to wear this backpack. I'm going to use this rifle. I'm going to carry my water this way. 
Let me carry my pistol this way. I'm going to wear these these uh, great boots I got. I'm going to use this killer backpack I got. And uh, and I'll ask them almost every time I'll ask them. I'll say, well, that sounds good. Sounds like you got a great group of uh, you know a lot of gear that that looks good. But have you ever put it on all at once and you know pranced around in it and see if it if it worked for you? And uh, very rarely has any of them ever said yes. Because they have it. And let me tell you something. Uh, wearing a piece of gear that doesn't fit or that uh, <clears throat> that prevents you from drawing your pistol or doesn't allow you to, uh, to get your mag out of the mag carrier... Uh, any of this stuff, or that, uh, or your, or your canteen uh, drops when you bend over, or any of the, any of the stuff like that. You don't want to wait until it in, until you're in a situation where finding that out is uh, might be detrimental to your health. You want to find this stuff out uh, long beforehand, and that's what we do. We provide folks the opportunity to test their gear. We want you to be able to see that you need to have a good balance between stamina. That's your physical ability, uh, you know, to do things. Your shooting skills, which is, you know, whether or not you can put put lead on the target, and then your gear. All three of those things have to work together in order for you to, in order for you to, to maintain an optimal uh, uh, ability uh, to respond to things to, in order for you to be a success. Your stamina, your shooting abilities, and your gear. And we provide you with an opportunity to, opportunity to do this. We're one of only a few folks in the nation to do this. Uh, Al and his bunch up in Oklahoma now have a running gun. And then Smokey Briggs uh, runs a, a running gun once a year out in Pecos, out in West Texas, which... If you haven't ever done it uh, and you want to do a running gun, I, I, I'm telling you, it's a great bunch of folks, and it's a great, it's a great event, a fun time, a little bit longer than ours. I think it's closer to seven miles. <clears throat> but uh, we're one of the few people uh, that provide you with a chance to do this. This isn't a three-gun. This isn't a three-gun match. This is a biathlon. This is a running gun, a shooting biathlon. And uh, if you'd like some more information or if you'd like to attend, you can go to uh, www.battleroadusa.com and then click on the run and gun button. That'll, that'll take you to the information page. And then uh, you can click on the, the sign-up sheet there, and it'll take you to the Eventbrite system. And if you've ever attended an Apple seat or something, you know, you, that's how you sign up is with Eventbrite. And we do the same thing. We use Eventbrite also. And get signed up for the event. The uh, uh, Eventbrite sends me notices every time they sell a ticket, and uh, and the notices have been coming pretty fast in the last couple of days, uh, which is great. Uh, but it also means that uh, that we're headed towards selling out the tickets. So if you'd like to, make sure that you have a slot, and it's going to be a great time, and there's going to be a lot of good friends there. Uh, you're going to meet at events like this that uh, that could turn into lifelong friends. There are going to be folks that 
probably think at least to a certain degree in the way that you do. Uh, I've met lots of folks at different running guns, and i got to tell you this, I've yet to meet, well, I've met somebody who was a uh, uh, kind of a, uh, I don't know, uh, he was a good guy. He was just loud and rough around the edges. Uh, but that's only one out of hundreds, and even that guy was a good guy. I'm just telling you, the folks you're going to meet at events like this are good people, and that's one of the reasons I go. And certainly, being an old fat dude, I certainly don't go because I love to run seven miles. Uh, I go because of the folks involved, because I know that uh, that I'm going to get to meet and talk to folks that uh, think the way that I do. I'm going to get to uh, a chance to check out my gear and make sure it works. And uh, it's just going to be a good all-around time. Because you've never done an event like this, uh, that you can't do it, or that you're not in good enough shape to run four and a half miles with your gear. Listen, uh, very few there there are one or two guys that jog to it, and these are the the monster dudes. Uh, most people don't. I mean, if you keep it, you can very easily finish the thing by keeping a good uh, uh, a good quick uh, pace, or even just a slow walk. You can even do a slow walk and uh, still finish the race and have a great time, all right? Don't let that stop you either. Uh, All right, that is going to be April 26th, and and you guys can find out more by going to battlemodeusa.com. Okay, guys, I think that's going to, uh, I think that's going to do it for tonight. Uh, Appreciate you guys listening, and uh, we'll see you next uh, Thursday, 7 p.m. Central. Until then, God bless. And-